0: King Charles and Queen Camilla are turning Americans off. Prince Harry is back in his element, and William and Kate join a Right Royal podcast. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Now, if I asked what age groups King Charles and Camilla might be most popular with in America, what would you say? The reason I ask is that I personally was quite surprised by the result of a new Newsweek poll. This was conducted by Redfield and Wilton, who we do our polling with, and it showed that the Queen Consort is actually more popular with Gen Z in America than her own generation. So in Britain, it's the opposite. In Britain, Charles and Camilla are way more popular with old people than young people, and we're going to talk about more on that in a minute. But for now, basically, there was a huge coronation bounce for them in May. Uh, Americans were loving them. Their, Their net approval ratings were hugely positive numbers, but both Charles and Camilla have now plummeted in their U.S. net approval ratings. In fact, the Queen Consort was marginally less popular in our latest survey than Prince Andrew. Um, So our latest poll gave her a net approval rating of minus 13. So net approval is how many people like you minus how many people dislike you. And so that was among all age groups. Um, And she was net zero among 18 to 26 year olds, but minus 24 among over 59s. Andrew was on minus 12 overall. So that makes Camilla the lowest out of all the royals we polled on. And we're talking here about people who lived through the Diana era in the 1990s. This is what's really interesting about it, is this is her generation, the people who actually remember, because they lived through it themselves, what took place between Diana, Charles and Camilla. Um, it's that generation who are driving this collapse and that fascinated me because there's always these arguments made in the UK press and the Daily Mail and the likes and actually even more prominently than that you know you've had people like John Major former UK Prime Minister Dame Judy Dench the actress weighing in on the crown and accusing Netflix of kind of sensationalizing the past and poisoning the narrative um, and you know kind of bemoaning the fact that people actually believe that it's true and I always see Sit back and think, guys, like the reality was so much worse. The crown is like the PG version of what happened. And if you want scandal, watch the secret tapes that Princess Diana recorded in her own words on camera uh, to her speech coach, Peter Settelin. They, they were broadcast in Britain on Channel 4 in uh, 2017, marking the 20th anniversary of her death. And they were so much worse. That was the, that. Was where the scandals were. That was where the bombshells were. And she said, for example, that Philip gave Charles permission to cheat on her with Camilla. And she said that Charles had told her that he refused to be the only Prince of Wales never to have a mistress. There were discussions of their sex life and when it disintegrated and more. So Netflix actually left out a lot And the worst stuff. And also it kind of humanised the fictional characters it depicted. And I say fictional characters, that's not a mistake. Like they are fictionalised versions of the real royal family members, which, you know, I do agree that that is kind of odd. It's kind of weird. They're all saying stuff that those real life people never really said. So that is kind of strange. But the fictionalised versions are humanised. So in a way, even though I actually, you know, I was really surprised by this polling, it does also sort of make sense that it was the people who actually remember it for themselves who are judging Charles and Camilla most harshly now. But it's not just the Queen Consort. The King himself was also on net zero. So in other words, the same number of people liked him as disliked him across all age groups. And that's tough, because a lot of Americans love the royals. It's not like America is, in general, an anti-royal country. A great many Americans adored Princess Diana. They loved the Queen. That's Queen Elizabeth II. Um, They still really like William and Kate. You know, William and Kate polling really well in our latest poll. Um, Charles and Camilla, though, are now polling worse um, than they were even in the days after Harry's memoir. So way back in January after Spare came out, they were actually doing better then than they are now, which is interesting. And I guess maybe you could attribute it partly to the fact that perhaps people kind of felt a bit sorry for Charles that his son was turning on him. That could have been a factor. Obviously, you know, for a lot of people, family is the most important thing. In our latest polling, so this was all done September 3rd and 4th, uh, Megan had also slipped back a little bit. She's now back into negative numbers. She's Her net approval rating is minus 2. Uh, Harry is still positive, but he has dipped from plus 18 in June to plus 12 now. Interestingly, the biggest... Oh, at one point, Harry actually does better with boomers than Megan does. Megan is liked more by Gen Z than Boomers, which is what you kind of expect, I think, because they spent so much time targeting Gen Z. Um, Harry, weirdly, is liked by he, he's liked by Gen Z and then he's liked by Boomers and it's the people in the middle who like him less. But the biggest single indicator of whether you are likely to be a Harry and Megan fan or not is actually who you voted for in the 2020 presidential election, and if you vote Biden, most likely you're going to be a Harry and Meghan fan, and if you vote Trump, most likely you're you're not. You're going to dislike them. The other royals, interestingly, don't you don't kind of hit that political divide quite so uh, quite so acutely. In Harry and Me- in Meghan's case, it's, it's really clear, and other royals are kind of are less divisive along political lines. Like they'll pick up fans among the Democrats, they'll pick up fans among Trump supporters, and it you know it it, it mixes and matches. Um, But the other take home, really, I think, from the Harry and Meghan um, aspect of the polling is that their summer charm offensive hasn't quite cut through yet. Now, this doesn't mean it won't. In fact, I think it generally does take quite a long time for the impact of... Of events that take place to manifest in polling. But obviously, you know, they got some really good publicity out of going to Beyonce. There were some really great videos of them looking like they were having a good time. So that was nice. Harry's Heart of Invictus Netflix show came out. It didn't get kind of huge, huge numbers, but it showed him doing good and giving back. And now he's been at the Invictus games as well. But that hasn't really manifested itself in the polling yet. And I kind of think that it is the right strategy and it will have an effect, but it just hasn't yet. Um, And, you know, William and Kate remain America's favourite royal couple. Living royal couple anyway. Um, The Prince of Wales was on plus 28 and the Princess was on plus 33. So that's some good news for them. Um, So some hope there for monarchy, uh, looking to the future, to the next generation. But there are also some other major problems brewing for King Charles on a global stage as well as back home. So I mentioned earlier, while they're more popular among uh, younger Americans than older Americans in Britain, it's the other way around. And 52% of Gen Z Brits don't like Charles, according to a new survey by YouGov. Uh, So interestingly, in May, there was another poll that suggested 51% of the same age group, 18 to 24 year olds, felt the monarchy should pay slavery reparations. And I say that because Caribbean nations are preparing to bypass the British government and go straight to the royals to request reparations. So to explain that... Previously, it was always a diplomatic issue. It was an issue between, say, for example, the government of Jamaica and the British government. And, you know, it was kind of something that would have to take place at that level. The monarchy always had this shield to hide behind where they could say, well, we can't apologise for slavery. We can't pay reparations because that would contradict British foreign policy. The official position of the British government is that we don't apologise. We don't pay reparations. But what these countries are planning to do is to just go straight to the royals and say, well, we think that you can and that you should. And this is no longer simply about Britain, the country paying reparations. Individual institutions ought to take matters into their own hands and use their own money to pay. So one of those countries is Grenada, and a senior figure within the uh, Reparations Commission there spoke to the Telegraph and said that they are planning to do exactly that and go straight to institutions, not just the monarchy, the Church of England and others as well, but certainly the royals too. Jamaica has also been talking about presenting the king with a petition calling for reparations. So Charles has for a while now been sitting on this kind of time bomb that the younger generation don't like him very much and the older generations love him so much or love the monarchy so much that it's easy to miss it when you look at the polling of all age groups. It only really stands out when you break it down and look at that 18 to 24 year old age bracket. And in that respect, it might be tempting for the palace and tempting for Charles to just ignore this issue or to assume that young people will change their minds as they get older. You know, it's the the kind of received wisdom is that people grow more conservative the older they get. But there is nothing particularly indicating that that's what's going to happen. I've mentioned on this podcast before, there has been some research recently suggesting that actually, so not Gen Z, but the generation above millennials are already bucking that trend. They are not getting more conservative as they get older, perhaps because they lived through the 2008 financial crash. And so they have this experience of financial hardship, which is really shaping a different worldview for them. So if Charles... Ignores this, he could wake up in 20 years' time when he gets towards the end of his reign and find that it's disintegrating around him and that actually what was 18 to 24 year olds don't like Charles becomes, well, they're now going to be kind of 38 to 45 year olds. And if the generations that follow feel the same way, then you're going to have a situation where monarchy has become a divisive issue. And as soon as monarchy is divisive and controversial, it ceases to perform its core function. Because the reason Britain has a monarchy in the 21st century is because it's supposed to unite people and give them a space within which they can feel patriotic and proud and engage in British history without having to engage in the kind of the mud fight of party politics. So, Labour hate Tories, Tories hate Labour, and it will always remain the case. Democrats hate Republicans, and Republicans hate Democrats, and it will always be that way. The monarchy is supposed to be the space where everybody can get together and just feel happy and positive and, you know, fantastic job done. So, the minute it becomes divisive and controversial, something has already been lost. So, um, what's Charles going to do? Well, he has, through Historic Royal Palaces, which is a kind of independent charity that's hardwired into monarchy, but technically independent. So through Historic Royal Palaces, he has backed some research into the monarchy's links to slavery, which is kind of doing half of something. The question still remains, what do you actually do once the research is completed? Like, let's say the research comes back and says, well, the monarchy has all these things to slavery. What happens next? Does that mean you pay reparations? So he still has core, important, fundamental decisions to make. I personally think he needs to try and find a way to do this, to set some money aside maybe aim for a total amount that's going to be paid over a number of years and uh, then you know get the ball rolling and start it happening. Uh, part of what I think has galvanised a lot of movements for reparations in the Caribbean, certainly in Granada, is the actions of a, a BBC journalist called Laura Trevelyan. She realised that, um, and her family realised that, ancestrally their their family had benefited from slavery to, to quite a huge amount so they have set aside a hundred thousand pounds to try to repay some of that debt and this is the trouble for monarchy is that the whole point of how the royals actually do their day perform their day-to-day function outside of the coronations and the jubilees is about doing the right thing being seen to do the right thing and leading by example in other words, setting a good example to other people to show them what they should do. So if a whole movement were to start to develop, where people who had these links within their own family trees started giving back, started taking matters into their own hands and paying reparations out of their own pockets, then there would be all these people around the monarchy doing that job of setting a good example while the monarchy was still kind of like hiding in a bunker trying to hope that the issue went away. So if you leave it so late that you are dragged kicking and screaming into doing it anyway, then you look terrible. What's much better is if you can see the writing on the wall, act early, get ahead of it, and then you can actually turn it into a PR boost. It is a PR benefit to get ahead of the wave and be one of the first, whereas devastating from a PR point of view to hold out for ages and 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 and then have to cave and admit you were wrong all along. So my view is that they should read the writing on the wall and get ahead of this early so that they can actually come out looking like the good guys. But it is a bind for Charles because you know he's he needs to win back that younger generation. But also, if he were to do this, the boomer generation will hate it in Britain. They will hate it, and it will cause a massive and very toxic debate. And it will be condemned uh, among the media commentariat as well. On on you know channels like GB News, which has been compared to Fox uh, in America, will be dead against it. As well as some high profile public figures, I think Pierce Morgan is on record saying he doesn't believe. Uh, that it should that it's Charles's fault, or that he should be held responsible for it. And as if all of that wasn't enough, uh, there is a new crisis on Charles's doorstep, um, which kind of, sort of doesn't directly involve him, but does kind of indirectly involve him. Which is that at his coronation, the police were quite heavy-handed, and they arrested a bunch of people, including a whole chunk of whom they just had to release and let go without charges because those people had done nothing wrong. Now, crucially, among that group were a number of anti-monarchy protesters from an organisation called Republic, which is Britain's kind of leading anti-monarchy campaign group. And they had contacted the police in advance to tell them they were going to stage a demonstration. There had been discussions with the police about where it would be and when it would be, down to what would be written on the placards at the demonstration. They actually told the police what the, what the placards or what the banners were going to say. And despite all of this, they had their own police liaison officer who was communicating with them about how they should set this whole thing up and despite all of that they were arrested and graham smith the chief executive who has been a guest on the show in the past was not able to protest against the coronation after spending many hours in custody he explained it all in the in the days afterwards Um, so do check out that episode if you want to hear more about it but he is suing the police through the High Court um, and he wants an acknowledgement from the from the British Metropolitan Police Service, which is London's police force, that the arrests were wrong and should never have happened. And what makes it even more kind of politically explosive in Britain is that he was actually arrested under new anti-protest laws, which are profoundly unpopular with protest movements. And so... It's kind of already being pitched as almost like a trial of those laws. So one of them was that he was accused of uh, being in possession of locking on devices. So... Uh, one tactic that protesters have used is to turn up at a place and physically attach themselves to the architecture in a street, you know, like bike lock themselves to a lamppost, whatever it might be, so that the police can't drag them out. So it's now illegal to be in possession of like a kind of locking on device on the way to a protest. But the locking on devices that the police said the protesters had were just kind of like luggage straps that could easily be cut through anyway or just pulled apart. Hence the reason why they were all released without charge. So what Graham Smith told me was that whether Charles put any pressure on the police to come down hard on protesters or not, and it may well be that it had nothing to do with him, but whether he did or not, he has said absolutely nothing to condemn the police activity um, in the aftermath, which means that it allows the appearance that this was done in his name in order to preserve his coronation, to protect his reputation. And if he doesn't agree, if thinks thinks that it is curtailing the right to free speech or is an assault on democracy or whatever it may be then he has certainly not let anybody know that um so this is another issue that could be explosive for charles and could um particularly play badly with that younger generation Um, and on that note i'm going to take a quick break But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, Prince Harry has been at the Invictus Games. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Prince Harry's Invictus Games has started. This is his Olympics and paralympics style tournament for wounded veterans and it's in Germany in Dusseldorf where the prince has given an opening speech and he's got a standing ovation and he's been pictured enjoying the games uh, which is great to see and it all started before he even reached the country because Harry stopped off in Britain on the way. Uh, he went to the Well Child Awards in London on September the 7th. So the Well Child is this charity that he's the patron of, which helps to look after children who are really seriously ill at home so that they don't have to spend all this time in hospital so they can be with their families, basically. So it's a great cause. And it, because it was the day before the anniversary of the Queen's death, he gave a speech where he paid tribute to his grandmother. And he said, as you know, I was unable to attend the awards last year as my grandmother passed away. As you also probably know, she would have been the first person to insist that I still come to be with you all instead of going to her. And that's precisely why I know exactly one year on that she is looking down on all of us tonight, happy we're together, continuing to spotlight such an incredible community. So the next day, i.e. on the anniversary itself... Harry was photographed paying his respects at St. George's Chapel where the Queen was laid to rest. Um, And we don't think that he saw his father uh, who was up in Scotland or his brother who was um, at a chapel in Wales um, before he headed on to Germany Um, but there in in Dusseldorf he gave another speech at the opening ceremony of the Invictus Games and like I said he got a big standing ovation, people clapping, people chanting his name and this time he referenced the importance of teamwork Um, which, you know, arguably not a characteristic that has always been part of royal relations, um, at least not during the era of the Royal Rift when everything was breaking down between him and Meghan on the one hand and William and Kate on the other. Um, But it was very much a part of the events at the Invictus Games once they started. Harry was a guest on a German TV show where he did a little kind of soccer challenge thing. They had him try and kick a ball through some holes. There were some other competitors doing the same thing. Um, He didn't do particularly well, but fair enough. I don't think I would have scored either. So I certainly won't be the one to criticize him. And um, he also, of course, stopped in on some of the events, including the wheelchair rugby, the wheelchair basketball. You know, he did the whole thing, hugging children, meeting competitors from the UK team, from the Ukrainian team, uh, and all of that kind of stuff, watching from the sidelines. And generally, you know, he looked pretty happy while he was doing all of this. And I think that is probably the main take home is that at the Invictus Games, he looked like he was back in his element and back. Uh, loving the job that he does. Um, And that will no doubt, I think, be a psychological boost for him. He actually talks in his book, In Spare, how you know of all the things he tried to help his mental health actually work was really good for doing that, having a sense of purpose and a sense of focus. So he's been building, he would have been building for months to the Invictus Games and to now be there in Germany, surrounded by this group of people who absolutely adore him, Um, will be a massive boost to him. He is obviously now very unpopular in Britain. I would imagine that all his trips to Britain have a kind of a slight cloud over them. I mean, he said through his legal representative that he fears a physical attack on him in Britain. Um, And even in America, I, I feel like he isn't necessarily guaranteed quite such a kind of uh, infatuous re- you know welcome as the one he got at Invictus, this is really kind of his community, um, so I think that would have been great for him. It might well also have a positive impact on public opinion too i mean he you know he has a very, very long way to go to pull himself back to anything even you know, remotely uh, reminiscent of popularity among the British public. He is very firmly disliked in Britain. But he is, as I said earlier, doing better in America. And so if Americans are keeping an eye on this, if they are watching it, then this is Harry doing what he does best. And of course, of all the demographic groups that might be paying attention to this story, the one that it has most relevance to is forces veterans and their families and their whole military community which is obviously you know it's big big part of american society as well as every other country around the world so i think that'll play very well among veterans in america and probably also among like a whole cross-section of american society that is pro-military pro-army and kind of very generally supportive of veterans so I've been saying on this podcast for quite a while now that Harry kind of needs to go back to basics and Meghan needs to go back to basics and do some of that old school royal thing of just turning up and looking like they're doing good and making the world a better place. And Meghan, of course, has gone to Germany to be at Invictus with Harry. She arrived today and she's been to like a party for competitors and their families. She kind of made a joke apologizing that she arrived late and said she was settling the kids at home um, so she clearly is going to be a big part of this event. I think we're going to see her in the coming days kind of out and about watching some of the competitions, probably getting to know some of the competitors, speaking to people. I'm quite interested to see what, what the outfit's are going to be like. I think this could be a really good opportunity for her to show us some really great outfits to look good. And again, you know, it's back to that classic royal uh, way of doing things. You know, the old school royal playbook. They're going to be out and about doing good, visibly photographed, looking fantastic looking great looking happy and looking like they're making the world a better place i think that's going to be brilliant for both of them and i'm going to take one more quick break but before i do a reminder to follow me on twitter i'm at jack royston you will find all my latest stories for newsweek and when i'm back prince harry is not the only one getting sporty Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Prince William and Kate Middleton have been getting into the spirit of the Rugby World Cup. Um, So I appreciate rugby is not exactly America's favourite sport, um, but we like it here in Britain. And needless to say, whatever you think of rugby... Uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales opened up during an appearance on Mike Tyndall's podcast. So n- perhaps not everybody knows who Tindall is, but he, in, in royal terms, he's Zara Tyndall's husband. And Zara Tyndall is a granddaughter of the late Queen. She's also daughter to Princess Anne, who was also a guest alongside William and Kate. Um, and in rugby terms, for what it's worth, Mike Tyndall was a, a big like rugby World Cup winning England star um, who now hosts this podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. Um, Prince William revealed that he wants to teach their children to be good losers, which is such a hard skill for kids, you know, Um, especially when they're young. Obviously, they all want to win, and it feels so unfair when things don't go their way. But that's life. It's an important life lesson, and you've got to learn at some point. It's also, you've got to think, it's an important life lesson for royal kids, because I... Bet you there is a lot of letting George, Charlotte, and Louie win. <laughs> like if you're the teacher in that class, you are letting those kids win. Um, but Kate also revealed that she likes cold water swimming. Uh, the colder, the better, that she says, and she does it at night. Now, cold water swimming it seems to be huge to me. I actually did it for the first time pretty recently. And I have to say, I loved it. You get such a buzz out of doing it. I had such a buzz when I came out of the water, luckily into a sunny day. Um, So obviously it wasn't as cold as some people do it where it's like actually, you know, virtually freezing temperatures. But I kind of also picture a nervous Prince William flying overhead in his old search and rescue helicopter from his days as a pilot, just making sure nothing goes wrong. Which probably he doesn't do in real life, but I feel like maybe that's what he would like to be doing. I would certainly, like at night, <laughs> be kind of thinking, like, I really hope nothing goes wrong here, guys. And Kate also said that Princess Charlotte has started playing rugby, and she noted that girls didn't play the sport when she was at school. That was actually also the case when I was at school. We yeah, the guys, we played rugby, which was, um, I actually enjoyed it. I liked playing rugby, but... It's definitely, you know, it could be scary when you first start playing and you've got to put tackles in. So um, hopefully Charlotte's enjoying it. I'm sure they won't be doing contacts yet. I'd imagine they'll be doing some kind of like tag rugby. Um, Also, interestingly, she has played beer pong with Mike Tindall, who said she's very competitive. So that would have been an interesting thing to see. And this whole podcast was released to coincide with Kate and William travelling to France to watch England play Argentina. That was Kate. She is the uh, patron of the English uh, RFU. It's called the Rugby Football Union. Um, And then William, who is uh, patron of the corresponding Welsh rugby governing body, uh, he saw Wales play Fiji in the Rugby World Cup. Uh, So this is all the group stages, so really early on. Both sides won. William's presence kind of controversial in a way, a little bit, because he didn't go to Australia for for the final of the Women's uh, Football Soccer World Cup. Uh, England lost, sadly, but had they won, you know, that would have been their first World Cup win since the men won in 1966, and England would have gone absolutely bananas. They would have got so uh, excited, the whole country. So I have to say, I don't think think there was a huge amount of resentment about William turning up to support Wales. I think it really is more the other way around. People just really wanted him in Australia watching, watching the teams called the Lionesses. I think they wanted him there watching the Lionesses um, proving, demonstrating, showing people that the women's game is as important as the men's game. Because really you can say anything, you know, you can say anything with words. Everybody knows that you can get in front of a camera and say whatever you want, but your words only have meaning if you kind of live by them. And that's what living by them really means. It means going out to Australia, as I'm sure he would have done if it had been the men's team. But I think I've spoken about that before and there is no need to get bogged down in it now. So I will just simply say that I think we're going to see more of William and Kate's in the Rugby World Cup. And fair enough, long may it continue. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff On all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.